Project Connected Home over IP, often called CHIP, was the original name for a royalty-free proprietary connection standard that was ultimately renamed Matter, the 1.0 version of which was finally published in October of 2022, after three years of pre-1.0 development. In mid-November of 2022, a device company called Meros released a Wi-Fi-connected smart plug that made inbuilt use of the Matter standard. One of the first devices brought to market with Matter support included. The device even has a little Matter logo on it to make sure you understand that this is an especially valuable smart plug. That additional implied value stems from what Matter allows supporting devices to do. A conventional smart plug will generally allow you to connect to one of the many proprietary connectivity networks offered by an array of tech companies globally. So you might have a smart plug that works with Samsung's SmartThings device network, but it might also instead connect to Apple's Home app or Amazon's Smart Home device mesh. The theory behind each of these connectivity options is essentially the same. If you have a device that works with Samsung's SmartThings network, it will connect seamlessly to all other devices using your Wi-Fi signal that are on the same SmartThings network. This makes lashing together a bunch of disparate hardware components like speakers and security cameras and smartphones and computers a million times easier. So that's beneficial for customers. This is also beneficial for the product maker though, as it tends to incentivize the purchase of devices that work on that same network. If you have a handful of Samsung SmartThings devices on a network at home, you will probably be less likely to buy a smart plug that only works with Apple's Home app or Amazon's Smart Home device network. You could buy products that don't interact with all of your other products, but why? This connectivity becomes a selling point, and it also creates what's called consumer lock-in, making it less likely you'll buy stuff from these companies' competitors in the future because of that interconnectivity, and because although some of these networks kinda sorta work with some devices from other networks, few pre-matter devices work with all of them. So there are benefits all around to having these types of device network options, but it's a bummer when you are, let's say, gifted a device that doesn't work on the network you use with all of your other devices, or if the network you're using stops working because it's based on an older technology that hasn't been upgraded, or because the company behind it stops supporting that type of network, or the devices you own that make use of it. This has happened several times already. In a past episode, I focused on a company called Hive that makes smart cameras and thermostats and things like that, many of which will cease working in the near future because they won't be able to phone home anymore across the internet, which will in practice disconnect them from the local Hive smart network and in turn brick the devices, render them inoperable because they require the ability to phone home to function. And it could happen again in the future, all these hardware components becoming less functional because they lack that much lauded interconnectivity capability. A smart security camera is less useful when it's no longer smart, in the sense that you can no longer view its video feed from wherever you are in the world using your smartphone. And a smart plug becomes essentially worthless if that interconnectivity disappears. 
One solution to this issue of both disappearing smart networks and the gulfs that exist between the various networks that have been built out by all these different companies, each wanting to protect their own fragmented, walled garden smart device spaces, if often at the expense of convenience for their customers, is to figure out how to allow all these devices to play well with each other, creating what amounts to a digital converter that allows users to control their Amazon Echo devices through their Apple Home products, and vice versa. And that's exactly what Matter does. It's a network for networks, allowing all these bits and pieces of hardware and software to play well with each other. Maybe not offering all the same benefits from device to device, because each network has its own powers and peculiarities, but allowing the fundamentals to translate across meshes, which in turn will make it less likely that any device will be left functionless if its company goes under. And it should allow most common devices, at least, to be interactive with all other most common devices. That's the theory, at least, though realizing the full potential here will require buy-in from all the different players in this smart device space. Fortunately, most of the most common devices made by Apple and Amazon and Android and Google and Samsung will include matter interoperability, if not now, in the near future. Matter-specific controllers are being built into next-step devices, but such controllers are not required to get the basic functionality in place. So earlier model Echo devices and Samsung smart fridges and iPhones should be able to play well with a whole slew of devices made by different companies in the next year or two. What I'd like to talk about today, though, is one of the prime features of the smart home smart device network product type, and how this specific technology category doesn't seem to be living up to earlier expectations, despite a huge amount of investment in it over the past decade. listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The article I'd like to start with today comes from Ars Technica, and it's entitled, Amazon Alexa is a, quote, colossal failure, end quote, on pace to lose $10 billion this year. The concept of a virtual assistant is older than even modern computing technology, with early versions popping up as far back as the mid-20th century at Bell Labs, and toy versions that were mostly just novelties, arising even earlier than that, back in the 1920s. The version made at Bell Labs in 1952, though, called Audrey, short for Automatic Digit Recognition Machine, was huge, powered by vacuum tubes, and capable of recognizing phonemes which are individual segments of spoken language, the sounds that we combine into words. IBM demonstrated a similar and similarly hefty device in the 1960s called Shoebox, which was a calculator that could recognize numbers and math-related terms, performing the duties of a more typical calculator, but controlled vocally. Around that same time, a chatbot called Eliza blew everyone's mind at MIT, where it was developed, and that was able to use a technique called pattern matching to make scripted responses to things folks typed into a terminal seem like real conversational components. It had scripted responses that would mimic aspects of what the human being typing at it would say, and because it was able to recognize patterns in those typed questions and answers, some of Eliza's messages seemed incredibly real to the folks who conversed with it. 
And that same general concept of pattern recognition is used in a lot of chatbots today, which is why these things can converse with us in often realistic-seeming ways without actually understanding the meaning of the words we're saying or the words that they are responding with. Things escalated pretty rapidly in the 1990s when cheap, small, powerful digital microprocessors were initially being churned out and embedded in seemingly every possible type of consumer device, and the personal computer was starting to catch on with the everyday person rather than just specialists. Speech recognition technology began to show up in these devices, and in the late 90s, for a few hundred bucks, you could buy computer software that would be able to recognize and transcribe your speech decently well at a rate of about 100 words per minute. In 2010, tech company Apple acquired a DARPA-financed voice recognition and virtual assistant company called Siri from a nonprofit research institute called SRI International so they could include the app in their iPhone 4S smartphone, allowing users to do things like make phone calls, write and send text messages, and launch and control all sorts of apps using their voice instead of the phone's touchscreen. In late 2014, Amazon announced its Alexa voice assistant, which was similar in many ways to Apple's Siri, but optimized to be used without a smartphone or other accompanying screen, at least at first embodied entirely in the company's also newly announced Echo Smart Speaker device which was arguably the beginning of the smart speaker product category, though several unsuccessful spiritual precursors arrived a bit earlier than that. Virtual assistants vary in utility, capability, and manifestation in that most of them today allow users to engage with them and the devices and apps and media to which they're connected via text message like apps and utilities, tap-based screens, and disembodied voice interfaces. But it's that last option that I want to talk about here in particular, as this is the interface that Amazon innovated and has arguably, according to some metrics at least, taken the lead on and invested the most in. And it's that interface type that has gone from being lauded as the next big thing, an ever-present audio operating system, to being criticized as a missed opportunity and a bit of a money pit by those working on it and those in the larger tech industry. Following the mostly novelty-based success of the early Echo devices, which were basic tubular speakers meant to be set up in one's home, each of which contained microphones capable of picking up speech from across the room, Amazon doubled down on this concept and deployed little puck-sized versions of the same, speaker-microphone combos meant to be plugged into outlets, like nightlights, versions meant to be used in one's car while driving, and an array of echo options with all sorts of screens and or cameras embedded in them alongside those microphones and speakers. The idea was to make this virtual assistant into an audio operating system that could be used for many of the same things we might otherwise use our phones and computers for. So while you might use iOS or Android on your smartphone, and macOS or Windows or Linux on your computer, Amazon was hoping their customers would start using Alexa as a pervasive but invisible, always available in their homes, in their cars, as they're walking down the street operating system. Alexa was also baked into apps to be used on smartphones and in wireless headphones and earbuds alongside more niche use cases, like on smartwatches and even smart sunglasses with little speakers and microphones embedded in the arms of the glasses. 
The idea was to make this tool available no matter where you happened to be, on whatever device you had on hand or nearby. So you could just speak your desires out loud. And like some kind of genie from a lamp, Alexa would set a timer for you, would check Wikipedia for a fact or figure, or it would start playing a Spotify playlist. More ideally than using this audio OS to access those other resources, though, from Amazon's perspective at least, was feeding users Amazon alternatives instead. So while Spotify playlists could technically be used, Amazon Music, which is a Spotify alternative streaming service, works a bit better in some ways with Alexa, allowing more options and fewer frictions between the operating system and the service. So slowly but surely, Amazon released more services to swap in for those other external services they didn't own, trying to replicate what Apple has done with their iOS operating system, essentially locking customers into their portfolio of apps and hardware and services by making it more streamlined and convenient to do so once they've landed on the Alexa operating system. A major component of this bet, too, was that over time, as people became more accustomed to and comfortable with the Alexa audio operating system, they would shift their buying habits. All the things they might otherwise purchase at the grocery store or the Walmart down the street, they would shift that over to this increasingly pervasive, ever-present and convenient audio assistant. So when they need toilet paper, they will just say as much to Alexa. They will ask Alexa to order it, and then they won't have to think about it anymore. They also probably won't think too hard about the price they are paying for that toilet paper, because they're just going about their day, buying stuff borderline impulsively, instead of adding it to a shopping cart, price comparing on Google, and then maybe buying it elsewhere. Making this aspect of purchasing things reflexive and thoughtless was meant to further increase Amazon's e-commerce dominance, while also making some aspects of that experience more convenient for customers and lucrative for Amazon's bottom line. So the business case here was to get folks to shift over from things like Spotify to in-house alternatives like Apple Music, which you can get solo, but you can also get a version of as part of the far pricier Amazon Prime Omni Bundle membership, while at the same time getting people to buy more stuff more casually and less price consciously via this audio assistant mechanism, which would up sales while also allowing them to slowly and subtly increase prices on just about everything without folks being as conscious of those increases. Part of their theory worked out. People bought a lot of Echo devices and started using Alexa for a lot of things. The monetarily relevant components of that plan, unfortunately for Amazon, have not worked out quite as well. Looping back around to that Ars Technica article, about 10,000 people have been and are in the process of being laid off at Amazon. And one of the hardest hit facets of the company is their Alexa voice assistant unit, which, though having earned Amazon the label of trailblazer and innovator by kicking off the smart speaker market, has never been able to earn them a profit. Echo devices are generally sold either close to cost or at a loss, the theory being that the company would make their profit by selling stuff, goods, and Amazon services to folks who use these devices. Give them the razor, sell them the blades, basically. 
They have not, however, seen the major uptake in new Prime or music or other service subscriptions they had hoped for, no matter how much they incentivized such offerings to Alexa users. And shopping using voice assistance never really took off. They've tried to incentivize this with Alexa-exclusive deals from time to time, but the process has generally been clunky, and people are more likely to add products to a list rather than buying stuff outright without being able to see the product first and competing offers and such before pulling the trigger on purchasing the item. So it creates another friction rather than making the buying process simpler and more spur of the moment. Amazon has also been investing heavily in building out its advertising network, further differentiating its existing business model from a company that mostly sells products and web services to that of a company that also sells ads across its many platforms. A whole lot of what you see when you log into Amazon these days are ads that look like normal product recommendations. Those companies and sellers pay to be at the top of the page when you're searching for whatever it is you want to buy. That's been a huge source of revenue for them lately, reportedly bringing in nearly $10 billion each quarter as of late 2022. And they were hoping that Alexa would become another component of that ad network. If you've ever used an Echo device, you know that ads play periodically when you're trying to listen to music or podcasts, or if you're playing one of the games in their app library. That also never manifested, though, because although people do use those apps and listen to podcasts and music through their Echo device, the vast majority of users primarily use these devices to set timers or ask about the weather. Alexa-enabled devices process about a billion interactions each week, but almost all of those interactions cost Amazon money to pay for the processing power required to engage in this relatively superficial way. These are not ad placement opportunities, and they are not seeing the deep advertising-worthy engagement that they had hoped for when they started building and investing in and marketing these products. So the business theory behind this arguably quite impressive technology and this whole industry that Amazon played a major role in developing and shaping never really played out as anticipated or hoped. And the Alexa wing of the company lost something like $3 billion in the first quarter of 2022 alone and is expected to lose around $10 billion for the year, a significant loss even for a company as wealthy and sprawling as Amazon particularly at a moment like this one, where the tech industry is battening down the hatches, slowing or ceasing hiring and firing swaths of employees because the economy looks likely to tip into a recession that could last a year or two or more, and market valuations are drying up as tech company profit expectations are reduced to around twice current revenues rather than the 10 to 20x assumptions that have been made for most of the 21st century thus far. And this is a big story in part because Amazon is such a behemoth, and this would seem to be a major flub for them, despite it being, again, arguably, a technology success, even if not a monetary one. But it's also big because this market goes well beyond Amazon these days. Many major tech companies have invested in this space, and several of them have reported that their audio assistant wing is a financial drag on the rest of the company. Google's CEO recently said that cuts being implemented across the company would hit the Google Assistant division especially hard, as the product, which is basically just Google search but conducted audibly, never found a monetization method that worked. 
And the same seems to be true at Apple, which in 2021 killed off their HomePod smart speaker offering. They've still got a smaller version of this product on the shelves, and they may at some point reintroduce the bigger version as well. But Apple is reportedly currently using Siri as a loss leader for their iPhone product. And they're also reportedly thinking about spreading their burgeoning advertising efforts into the audio space, which likely wouldn't be a popular move, which is part of why Google shied away from that. And Amazon hasn't managed to make it palatable on scale in the past, but you never know. It might work for Apple, despite not having worked for its competitors. The implications of this widespread pullback from this space could be broad. And it could be that smart speakers and other audio operating system-focused devices become less common or make use of less resource-intensive versions of what's currently there, the answers and services becoming more rote. And as a consequence, fewer outside companies investing in building Google Home and Amazon Alexa apps, which in turn would likely lead to less attention for these audio operating systems and less interest in further developing them from the companies that make them even more so than right now. This could also impact that larger smart device industry that I mentioned in the intro, which is in the process of integrating, at least to a small degree, tying all the current networks into a larger mesh via the Matter protocol. But maybe because of this downswing for this facet of the industry becoming less appealing at the same time, because many of these networks are controlled or interfaced with, at least at times and to some degree, using these audio operating systems, these smart speaker bound voice assistants, we could perhaps see premium versions of these audio interfaces arise to fill this need as many smart services and devices already have monthly fees attached to some aspect of their functionality so they could become loss leaders a bit like Siri is for Apple currently. But there's a chance some of them will lose effectiveness and utility in the coming years because of this larger audio interface industry pullback. book I'd like to recommend today is called An Immense World by Ed Yong. So I'll say up front that anything Ed Yong writes is an immediate read for me. He's just a very good writer, both in his columns and articles that he writes for The Atlantic and other publications, but his other books as well. They are just absolutely wonderful reads. And they're wonderful in the way that good science writing is wonderful. You learn a whole lot, but as you're learning, you're also filled with a sense of awe at what we know and what we don't know and how the process of coming to know happens, how that all plays out and how it works a remarkable amount of the time, despite everything. This particular book is about what you might think of as the sensorium of different creatures, the way different life perceives the world, and what that must be like and what that must do to shape their perspective and their interpretation and their lives, everything they do and are, in the same way that our perception, our senses, and the way that our biologies interpret that sensory information shapes everything about us, individually and culturally. Now, if any of that sounds interesting to you, consider picking up a copy of An Immense World by Ed Young. 
You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find the show notes and transcript for this and every episode of the podcast at letsknowthings.com. You can find a bundle of my other projects at understandery.com. And feel free to reach out and say howdy on social media. I'm at Colin is my name on Instagram and Twitter and Colin Wright on Facebook and YouTube. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again next week. Thank you.